Welcome to the Austin Action Fest podcast. We focus on filmmaking from idea to distribution and everything in between. We focus on you getting your project in the can and for the world to see. Thank you for listening to the Austin Action Fest podcast. Now let's get cracking. Got it. Okay. How you were throwing out some truth bombs because we never yeah. heard some of the stuff. That, at least I've never heard of some of the stuff that you were mentioning as far as some of the process. So I thank you very much for that. Uh, we're not about any of that, especially about the order of learning about camera. We that first of all, we got into. I got into this the the indie way, so none of those rules applied at all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting to learn. Uh, because of it, there's definitely going to be gaps in my knowledge base when it comes to certain things. So this is all well, very. I will tell you this: one really good place to learn cinematography is in an actual good cinematography class. My cinematography professor, who's now dead, taught me tons, but it depends on the teacher. I used to teach at the new school in New York mm -hmm. and they asked me to teach a cinematography class and I did the way I was taught. And then at the end of the, between semesters, the head of the department said, you know what? We'd really appreciate it if you would just send them out with video cameras and start shooting. I said, well, then you're asking me to teach advanced birthday party videography. Ooh. I'm actually trying to teach them the principles of setting up a shot and how to light. I said, I don't want to there. It's way too early for them to start using cameras. You know, <laughs> because then, yeah, they'll get an image and they think they're camera people and they're not. Right. So I continue teaching that way for another two semesters with the same complaint. All my students loved it, but the administration was like, we're promising kids they can go out and make movies. I said, well, then you're not a film department. Then you're a multimedia class. So I left. I stopped teaching at the new school. And I, and I definitely, I like that. There's definitely a, those are different things. Like for me, it made sense based on what I was actually trying to do for us to pick up cameras as quick as we did. But also, I got books on digital photography and cinematography. Absolutely. And I, I started, whereas the average person is not, a lot of people can't learn from a book. It's funny because when you're talking about your background, I, I was with magnet schools, talented and gifted and all that stuff. Sure. Really, I just know how to process information pretty good. It's not that I had so much, but I can learn from a book. Like I go get a book, how do, you, how do you trade stocks? I will read that book and then I can comfortably go out and do the thing. And everybody can't, can't do that. So if you give right. this guy a camera, he gets a pretty decent 50, a nifty 50 and it looks good. He thinks he's done. Like we don't gotta learn how to bend light at all. We're good, just go out in the daytime, get a little cloud action going good image and there is a difference between that person and i don't know like lubeski or somebody like that so yeah sure. definitely well the thing is if you just you can learn by trial and error mm -hmm. uh my the same professor beta Botka, told this first thing he says i'm not 
I can't teach you talent. Don't right. ask me to teach you talent. What I can teach you are <laughs> skills. He goes, anybody that tells you they can teach you talent is lying. So you're right. But going out and capturing something beautiful for me means a hell of a lot more if you can repeat it and you know why it looks beautiful. Otherwise, your ceiling is what you can see. It doesn't Ooh. allow you to create things that you don't happen upon. That was, that was work. Your ceiling is what you can see. That'll preach. And it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be. The ceiling should be what you can imagine and then create. So when I'm saying learning from books and all that, I am not talking about how to properly set up your camera for the best angle. I'm talking about talking about light ratios, how to achieve light ratios, how to we work in a two dimensional medium that is constantly trying to appear three dimensional. How do you create depth? How do you make the actual look realistic? Most of the time, if you take a camera outside, you're not getting the best exposures because our eyes and our cameras are very different. So it looks good outside. Your eyes making constant uh, changes to your aperture. Cameras can't do that. They only get one aperture. So it's the way of manipulating that so that it's not, it's not real, but it's believable and realistic. You know, and that's where cinematography and lighting and camera come to bear. It's creating things that don't look, that you want, you want things to look the way they should, not the way they do. Right. So, so if you look into that, if going into an, an, another uh, direction, how do you use that in visual effects? Oh, wait, don't visual we effects. We want to finish what left oh, off sorry, last, ahead, right? I missed that. Go don't, ahead. No, we want him to go back and finish what he, like, because I know oh, we're, yes, 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 go. Because I know we're getting ready to go off on a tangent. That's what I'm saying. If I were to, to yeah, yeah, finish it. Let us breathe on. No, yeah. it's not. Well, here's the thing. It's not a tangent. Because visual No, no, no. I mean, the, last, the last video we cut, you were talking about how you got here. And then now we've already started in on the technical part. So. Oh, I see. Then I'll, I'll yeah. wrap up how I got here. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That I had cool. a master's degree in computer graphics. Very rudimentary mid-1980s computer graphics. I put that in my back pocket. I went down a camera road, thought that it was not going to bear fruit for me, and that maybe the film business was not the place for me. I went into education, taught. I figured the best way to figure out what research I wanted to do in education was to find out what the problems actually were, not to read about what the problems were. Right. So I took a job for six months as a one day a week sub. And at the end of the school year, they offered me my own classroom for the next year. So I taught sixth grade in the South Bronx at PS 154, 
the southernmost school in the Bronx. I was living in the Bronx at the time. And I became a classroom teacher. And during that time, I thought I realized what the problem was. And it was the old lecture was not appealing to the children of the 90s. Right. Children needed to be better engaged, not preached at. Um, the New York City Board of Ed at the time was a shithole. It was, it was anarchy. And I had a really bad corrupt principal mm. who favored the worst teachers who were her friends. Wow. I realized that I met three teachers there who, to whom I would still bow down today. They were worth their weight in unobtainium. But they were rare. They were rare. But they were diehard. And they all tried to warn me away from their experience of caring too much. Wow. And they're like, Chris, it's going to kill you. And I'm like, it's not going to kill me. It didn't kill you. You've been here 35 years. It didn't kill you. Wow. So I did it for a year and it almost killed me. Um, and it was during that time researching graduate schools. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a big picture guy with small picture experience and knowledge. And the big picture wasn't there and I didn't feel confident enough to create it. So on a whim, I applied to graduate film school as a screenwriter. Okay. I applied to one. I only applied to one school. And I never in a million years imagined I would get in. What school? And I got in. What's that? What's the school? Columbia. Okay. <clears throat> you know why I do this? My yeah. great-grandpa went to Columbia. My great-grandpa, no, my grandpa went to Columbia. Graduate uh, with a master with two masters. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was in the Columbia Graduate School of the Arts class of '96. Awesome. And well, when I used to go to undergrad on to NYIT, I rode the one train, which is the same train to Columbia. And I would look at the kids with Columbia sweatshirts and notebooks with so much envy, you have no idea. <laughs> um, but I, I didn't think until years later that it was within my grasp. But I did. So I went to Columbia. Uh -huh. They required full-time day attendance for your first two years. Wow. So wow. I had to leave teaching. It's an elitist fucking pile of garbage. It is not for people putting themselves through school. I went to school with some rich motherfucking kids. I was not. I was a married guy making, you know, $30,000 a year. Um, I, had to, I had to leave teaching. And the only way, it was kind of kismet. I was teaching sixth graders in one of the only schools in the South Bronx that went K to six. Right. Most of the other schools went K to five. Mm. If I were not teaching seniors, we would not be having this conversation today because I would have mm. stayed in that school until those kids had graduated. 
Wow. And then I would have kept going. If I had taught fifth grade, I would not have gone to film school. I love those kids so dearly. The only thing that made it possible for me to leave is that they were leaving the school. Mm. Got it. So that was 1991. Now they're all in their 40s. You know, I hope they're geniuses because they were fucking awesome kids. But so I got into Columbia. I, start, I was offered an adjunct teaching position at night at my alma mater, NYIT. Okay. So I'd go to school full time during the day and I would right. teach a class every night, barely making ends meet. The end of my second year, my now ex-wife freaked out. She's like, I can't do this. I didn't realize she just wanted to live in the suburbs near her parents. She was an artist. I took her at her word. We were living as artists. And she's like, no, I'm tired of this shit. So um, I got a job. The only job I could get which was my worst job ever in my life. I went to work for an ad agency as an assistant producer, Young and Rubicam. At my interview, the head of production said, why? She said, I see here you have television experience, you have some film experience, you have a master's degree. Why do you wanna work in advertising? I said, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I have no idea if I do or not. I said, I've never done this before. Right. I'm, I'm in graduate school. I need a day job and I figured I would experiment. Right. She said, can you start Monday? Wow. So I started Monday and it was the right. worst was job it? I've ever had. Was I hated every you, minute of it. Why did was you it have, have enough people or was it that your resume was so strong that they, yes. why did you take that? No, it was that. It was that I wasn't somebody who majored in advertising coming out of undergrad. Most people who work at ad agencies come out of really good schools. Hmm. Most of them are white rich kids who come out of really good schools. Hmm. And all they want to do is advertising. Right. I don't know if any of you have worked in advertising. I'm not going to pass judgment. I personally hate it. I hate advertising. I haven't had cable in eight years. Every time I happen to see a TV commercial, it sets my teeth on edge. What is it about advertising that you just, you just despise? Just curious. Do you know the comedian Bill Hicks? Yes. yes. Okay. He has a bit on advertising and marketing. Basically, advertising now it it was probably clever in its day but most advertising i see now is such mean-spirited mm. negative comedy mm. they rely only on stereotypes because they've got 30 seconds to get their shitty message across so they rely on every old trope men can't do dishes men can't raise babies Women don't understand cars. Let's drink beer and join the army. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. And I will tell you, I worked in an ad agency for 19 months. 
my title on my business card was assistant film producer. I went through my entire box of business cards and scratched out with a black pen the word film. I wasn't a film producer. I had worked on films. Fuck you. I'm not a film producer. I once had one of the top directors in the industry at the time, a guy named Leslie Dector, used to make $20,000 a day. Wow. Say, say to me without any irony, he's like, you know what, Chris? I think commercial directors are doing the reportage of society. I think we are the enhanced journalists. This was the look I gave him. But picture it at age 24, not 56. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, belief that he has right there. I've never well, heard of it. It's a belief I have. Oh, and back to Bill Hicks. What Bill Hicks says, his bit is, uh, if anybody out there works in advertising or marketing in any way, right. I have some advice for you. Kill yourself. <laughs> I know you think that's a punchline. I know you think that's a bit, but I mean it. Kill Ooh. yourself. And I know the marketing guys are going, hey, he's going for the anti-marketing market. That's a pretty good market. He's like, no, that's not a punchline. <laughs> he said, you don't contribute anything to society. Now, Ooh. what I will say mm -hmm. is that advertising provides a hell of a lot of qualified, talented people with work, especially in production. Right. But I think the, advertise, the, the advertising creatives who don't know shit about production are some mm -hmm. of the meanest spirited, most oppressive, most disenfranchising people on the planet. Wow. They're in New York, they're all fucking white and they all live in Connecticut. Can you give me a description of, of how you actually feel this? Um, <laughs> I, you know what? I'm really trying yeah. to tone it down for the end. Yeah, I know. You're, you're, you want me to be impolite? <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're good. We're good. We're tight. You know. Okay. So, this this <laughs> ties in. So I'm finished, oh, I'm finished my full-time graduate school, daytime. Good. All I have left is my thesis and a couple of courses that I can take at night. Mm -hmm. So I take this job at YNR. The other assistant producers are a bit younger than I am, and apparently they are terrified of me. Okay. Because I didn't major in advertising, and I've let it be known that I don't really think too fondly of advertising. I'm there to do a job. But I do a really good job, and it becomes all-encompassing. Every bit of that job was degrading. And mm. degrading also to kind of engender degradation on the audience. Wow. I'm like, wow, you went to Brown University as an English major and now you're a copywriter? You probably in the bottom third of your class. Oh, you went to Harvard for fine art and you're an art director whose only job is to do sketches to hand to an illustrator to fill them out you're probably pretty bad. <clears throat> but during this time, I have to do a Colgate 
I'm assigned a Colgate test commercial. Assistant producers do what are called animatics, where they take illustrators sketches, scan them into an avid or whatever the editorial system was at the time, and kind of create a video storyboard. This video storyboard wanted an animation at the end. It was Colgate Total, which is still on the market, Total Control. They wanted a little loop, zip, animated at the end. My friend, who was a business manager at the ad agency, Mm -hmm. said, Chris, I would really like you to try this little animation house that's Mm -hmm. up in Westchester called Blue Sky. Ah, I know it. I know Blue Sky. I'm like, oh, okay. So I called Blue Sky, told them they were super nice, super cool, gave us a really good price. I okayed the job. I was on the phone with them every day. I'm like, call Mm -hmm. me if you have problems. I'll call the check on progress, see if you need anything, blah, 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 blah. That went on for about a month. They finished it in about two weeks. But the client, Colgate Palmolive, one of those awesome corporations that have killed the environment, um, they were dragging their feet on giving final approval. Okay. So I'm still in touch with Blue Sky once a week or so. And then the job gets canceled. They're like, yeah, we don't want to add it to that. But I said, well, you're going to pay them, right? And they said, well, we have to. I said, they finished the work two weeks ago. Yeah. So they paid Blue Sky. Okay. Commercial never ran. I thanked Blue Sky heartily. said, you know, you're approved, all the money, blah, 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 blah. And then I go back to my shit work at YNR. About a month and a half later, they call me. The producer that I had dealt with there, she said, Chris, we just got our first movie and I'm going to be jumping over to take care of that. We really like the way you work and engage with us. We're wondering if you would consider interviewing to be a producer here. I said, absolutely. It's the first time I've ever been taking a lunch for a job interview. Nice. The executive producer came down into the city. She took me out for a nice lunch. She had no idea how to master's degree in computer graphics. (laughs) She didn't know anybody who had master's degrees in computer graphics. So we interviewed and she hired me on the spot. I went back to YNR. I gave my notice. The head of production who had been treating me like garbage, literal garbage, for a year and a half, begged me, begged me to stay. We'll give you your own department. You can be head of the visual graphics at Young and Rubicam. I'm like, no, bye. I'm going to go make things. Literally. I said, literally. I said, I'm going to go make things. I'm not going to go sell things. I'll see you. My first day, my first day at Blue Sky, she called me and said, "Christopher, I'm sending a car for you right now. Have your bags packed. I'm bringing you back." I said, "That's adorable, Lori. That's not." (laughs) (laughs) So I went to work for Blue Sky. Now I was doing commercials because that was their stock and trade. The movie they got 
was MTV's first feature called Joe's Apartment. Joe's Apartment had been a short using puppets and marionettes. It was so successful that Viacom, who owned MTV, decided they were going to make it into a feature also using puppets. But there were a couple of dance sequences they wanted to use photoreal cockroaches. Right. So they asked Blue Sky to do a test. Right. Blue Sky did their first test. Viacom said, all the roaches are going to be CG. This is amazing. <laughs> we never expected it to be this good. So I personally had nothing to do with Joe's apartment. Right. I was taking over the commercials while my friend Nina Rappaport did Joe's apartment. Right. At the tail end of Joe's apartment came another movie. I was also not allowed to do that. She took that one too, and it was called The Fairy Godfather or um, A Simple Wish. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was a kid's movie. But then, a third of the way through that, based on the work in Joe's apartment, my now old friend friend Susan Zwerman had seen the reel and she she was the visual effects producer for 20th Century Fox and she pitched us for Alien 4. Oh, that nice. was my that was my first movie. Okay, so so let me no I know I'm say but say but ask this transitioning from the ad uh, agency to now doing a- Alien 4, you're about to jump into some heavy, heavy stuff, right? So in that process, you know, going from this to that, what were the, what was the, ch- was there a change in mentality as far as how you work, uh, the processes, did everything just get bigger? Well, okay, Blue Sky gave me an awful lot of confidence. I was their 30th employee. We were a very small company, really small. We had weekly meetings with the five founders who had all met at Magi Synthavision. They did um, the light cycle sequence for Tron back in 81. These are all heavy duty computer graphics nerds. Two of them had PhDs one in theoretical physics, one in practical physics. They were all geniuses, but they were all so collegial. They thought I was an incredibly valuable asset because I was the one who was able to reach out to the agency shitheads and make them money. (coughs) Nobody at the agencies knew I thought they were shitheads. They all thought I was a great guy. But I had also had camera experience. Right. I was already, my master's degree at Columbia, even though it doesn't say anything on it, except master of arts degree, master of fine arts from the school of the arts. Right. It was actually a dual major in cinematography and screenwriting. So when the team at Blue Sky, when the crew members, the animators, the lighting directors, the Mm -hmm. digital painters, when they learned that I had a cinematography background, I became an important resource for them. I actually Mm -hmm. taught cinematography to the CG lighting directors. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. I taught the principles of cinematography. I didn't know how to open a seashell. I didn't know how to write code. Right. But I knew the principles of cinematography, so I taught it to all the senior lighting directors there, most of whom are now at Pixar. You know, they mm -hmm. went a long time ago. So I stayed at Blue okay. Sky. I graduated from Columbia just before I started Alien 4. Right. You know, because I, I turned in my thesis project. I shot a number of student films right. while I was at Columbia. I mm. was, you know, one of two DPs in my class. Right. But I was working full time, you know, at Blue Sky. So, um, and Blue Sky never treated me like anything other than a true partner. I was there for five years, uh, from, from March of 95 until August of 2000. Uh, but Ooh. while I was there, in addition to doing a shit ton of commercials, I also did Alien 4, Fight Club, nice. Star Trek 9, um... Uh, Lulu on the Bridge. Uh, I did a bunch of movies and commercials. So Very small. Go ahead. I'm sorry. As you're, as you're moving through this whole process, as you're growing, how are you seeing yourself grow mentally, personally, professionally? Oh. What's going on in your head as you're moving through these different experiences? I never changed my philosophy, which is that I am here to learn. I have to say my first pre-production meeting for Alien 4, I was with Jean-Pierre Genet and Darius Kanji, who at the time was my cinematic, cinematographic hero. Yeah. I can't believe I'm sitting in the same room with them. So I am listening to everything they say. We are going through storyboards. Then Darius would turn to me because it was going to be the first time that we used a full CGL. Oh. They'd never done that before. Uh, Alien 3 used one in a long shot as it was falling out of the thing, but everything else was rod puppets. Based on our photorealistic work for the cockroaches in Joe's apartment, 20th Century Fox was taking a huge interest in our ability to do CG aliens. The main reason is why there was going to be a huge underwater sequence. And the two guys, Amalgamated Dynamics, uh, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff, had done the alien suit. They were the alien suit guys in all the other alien movies. Right. They constructed what they, had, what they were supposed to be a waterproof alien. They put it in the pool. Mm -hmm. It sank in less than 30 seconds and started to dissolve in under three minutes. Also, because it sank, it weighed about five tons. What? So they were scrambling. This is before I came up. They told me this story. And they said, we need CG aliens. So the principles of, comu of computer animation have never changed. Mm -hmm. Software changes, gets more user-friendly, the calculations are exponentially more robust and can, do, can mimic optics much better. 
but the principles haven't changed. So when Darius and Jean-Pierre turn to me and are looking at a storyboard with a CG alien underwater, they say, how are we going to do that? And I was able to rely on the basic principles and shit my pants simultaneously. I'm like, here it goes. I'm going to give them the best of my knowledge based on zero experience at this level. And I'm like, well, we're going to have to build a fully CG alien. We're going to have to be able to articulate it and model it so that it can do everything you want this alien to do. Mm -hmm. So that's an important thing for you guys to let me know. How does this thing move? Because that will affect the model. And, you know, all these things. And they both mm -hmm. nodded their head and they went, sounds reasonable. And then I was a part of the conversation for the next month. All the storyboard meetings. I was, I was among my heroes. It was amazing. But what I learned was never to overpromise. And I learned to not be intimidated because other people knew more about other stuff than I did. Right. Because I knew that they were paying me to be the expert in this so that I had to bring something to the table. I couldn't go say, well, what do you guys think? Right. So because that so, would have done so, a disservice so to them. Here's an important question though, because I'm thinking of the indie crowd now. Indie crowd, your five, six person team, whatever, throughout the entire production, you have the vote, you have to have a wide you have a pretty a pretty good set of skills, right? Movie productions, you know, larger films, it's a lot more, uh, there's a smaller slices of what you need to do. Or oh, what, absolutely. It's far so, more compartmentalized. Yes. So that that's, uh, that's where you are, are getting into now? At well, in blue, when I started at Blue Sky, mm -hmm. we only had two types of digital artists. We had animators and we had technical directors. Right. The animators were in charge of building their own models, rigging their own models, right. and setting up preliminary lights. Okay. The technical directors were in charge of texturing the models, refining the lights. Right. Blue Sky was a rarity <clears throat> in that we were the only company using a proprietary ray tracer. Everybody else was using what's called reflection mapping, which was fake light. Right. Like you would take reflections and project them onto your object, and that would simulate light. Right. Blue Sky, with its theoretical physicists, were actually <laughs> tracing the paths and behaviors of photons. Right. From a light at a certain distance of a certain diameter and how it would affect that texture. So we were slow, but I learned it from the ground up. So my cinematography principles that I was teaching the lighting directors right. actually made sense. It would have been completely useless at any other company. Right. Because nobody <laughs> else was treating light the way it actually behaves. So, so, so you had a unique skill set, I guess you can say. That, yeah, I had a varied skill set, yes. And when you paired it with this 
perfect time, perfect opportunity. Oh, I'm do. lucky as fuck. Yeah. You were the room where it happened. Okay. Um, but now to Chill's question, since that time, there was no such thing as a computer animator when I started at Blue Sky. Nobody came out of school a computer animator. Our animators had gone to school for traditional cell animation. Our lighting directors were largely recruited from the Graduate School of Architecture at Texas A&M's Visualization Lab because they were doing three-dimensional lighting. I applied there knowing this. I, I <laughs> seriously, seriously applied to go to A&M because I was told when I went, went to school um, that you can't do this, you can't do this in Cali, you can't do this in Florida. You go to Texas A&M because they have a, the most solid um, architectural part, uh, department or one of them in the country. That was true. X, Y, and Z, you need to go there. I know this and this is what, I, that, that's where I got uh, first exposed to 3ds max oh, okay i have guest lectured there and i've had several friends from blue sky who have been professors there so i actually knew a lot of people from texas before i had ever come to texas because a lot of them worked at blue sky mm -hmm. and they had gone to ut or a m or both um so i was part of the interviewer interviewers of the first class of digital animators who came out of ringling school of art and design in orlando they were the first kids to have a college degree in computer animation and and scan places like that even Oh, well, SCAD came later, yes. Ah, okay. Yeah, SCAD offered me a job a few years ago, but and, and just I didn't want to go to Savannah. Be, uh, what, Savannah College of, of Art, Art and Design. Design. Yeah. So is there anything with that combination, that technical and the cinematography combination, that you found that just kind of really blew your mind when it came to lighting and, and just that whole thought process? Um, of what these physics guys do and your cinematography background and um, that was that that I don't know a new frame of thinking how lighting and light trajectory and, and pathing and all that type of stuff. Um, I'm still amazed and gobsmacked by those physicists ability to emulate it but I understood what was happening from my practical cinematography background right. i didn't know why the inverse square rule applies but i knew that it did i knew that you know color temperatures of light affect different surfaces but when i started working among people who could emulate that that part blew my mind but it not it didn't affect me that it affected me intellectually it didn't affect me practically. In fact, it was right in thinking with what I was doing. To this day, my favorite visual effects are invisible. Yes. If I look at a scene that I know has visual effects and I don't know that there are visual effects there, I've done my job. 
it's visual effects are not supposed to be standalone. They are, in my opinion, they are supposed to act as if they were photographed on the day. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge part of what photorealistic 3D visual effects is about. Right. It's emulating the practical. It's, you know? it's weird that when you, the way you said that though, is that when we've talked to, uh, I think with Satellite, we're talking about music, and we're talking to anyone who does cinematography, that's the point as well. Like, I can put this cool camera move here, it's gonna be 360, but it's like, okay, now when I saw that move, since it didn't have anything to do with the scene, right. now I know I'm looking at a camera and now I'm out of the experience. Absolutely correct. Yes. I'll tell you the best cinematic, the best camera operating for storytelling I've seen in decades is uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, I just watch. Here's, here's why. <laughs> I would watch a scene, never having been taken out of it. Yeah. The scene would end, and I'd be like, "What the fuck did I just see?" <laughs> it take me out of it. I would watch the rest of the episode and then I would go back and I'm like, oh my God, that was a two and a half minute one. Never I once took me out of it. The beginning of uh, Revenant, when I saw that, I was like, I have to learn how to do this. Like, that's what I really learned. Like, I need to learn how to bend light and do what they did here because this is amazing. In Revenant, 90% visual effects. Yep. Ninety <laughs> percent visual effects. Shiva is an amazing cinematographer, but mostly because he knows what to photograph when and how it will ride alongside visual effects. Yep. Uh, I just watched the Breaking Bad episode where he was like, uh, "I have watched only so many of the episodes, but it's the clip where he's going off on the guy. He's beat up his partner, and he says." You come in here with meth, and I just took your meth, and you're asking for this. He's you made one mistake. This isn't meth. And he turns, and it blows up. I had to watch that four times because it was so good. I wasn't paying attention to the cut. I, like, I was so exactly. into it. And it was, it was cool, slow motion in the whole nine, but, like, my mind didn't recognize the cut the first time I watched. I had to watch it multiple times to catch it. If you do go back to watch it again, some look for episodes shot by Mike Slovis or Michael Slovis. I worked with him when I did the first season of Fringe in New York. He, he went on to be one of their main DPs. He is amazing. And I, was, I never watched Breaking Bad while it was on. Nor did I watch Sons of Anarchy, but I watched them in parallel streaming. Uh -huh. and, uh, there's a huge difference. Sons of Anarchy's camera work uh -huh. is terrible compared to Breaking Bad. <laughs> and their story, but here's the thing their story pacing is similar. I actually like Sons of Anarchy, I think the writing was really good. I like the show. But I couldn't, I could only, I had to stop watching it bouncing back and forth between Breaking Bad because mm. I was out of it every minute in Sons of Anarchy. Really? I went back oh. and I watched it and I was able to get back into it because it's traditional. 
But Breaking Bad sucks you in from the first frame, takes you on this gentle journey of horror, and then releases you, and you do not know you were watching a TV show. You know, that Narcos kind of does that to me as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, Narcos comes from the same, it's Vince Gilligan, I think. No, 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 no. That was uh, Mayans. Uh, I watched the first few seasons of Narcos, and you're right to a degree, but Marco, Narcos also was filmed more like a feature. Yeah, My was. screen just says Austin Action. Oh, okay. Narcos is shot more like a feature. Breaking Bad was definitely a series. There's a big difference. Because in a feature, you've got a lot more context. You've got a couple of hours mm -hmm. to sort of set your language. Right. In a television show, you've got a rotating carousel of directors. Yeah. You get a different director every other episode, usually. So looking at um, your list of, at least your public list of what you worked on, and if you could conclude uh, what, we, we, what you said before about seamless um, uses of visual effects, what have you worked on that you, what have you worked on and what have you not worked on have showed you the difference between what you were talking about? What, what have you worked on that you know, that makes things seamless? That is not obviously in space and whatever. What have you what have you not worked on? That have you seen that seamless or not? Fair question. Um, to be perfectly honest, I always strive to make it seamless, regardless of the situation. Right. Reality is always my basic touchstone. Right. Then I'm often pulled away from it for dramatic effect or because of limitations of the camera work or the location or whatever. So my least favorite project that I have ever worked on, and it ended up being as a result of no collaboration. In fact, production was very collaborative. Post-production tried to submarine visual effects because they felt we were taking something out of their hands. And that is an episode of The Sopranos called Proshai Labushka. It is the thing I am most embarrassed of in my entire career. Nancy Marchand, who played Livia Soprano, died between seasons two and three. Physically, she died of cancer. Right. She had been ill for most of season two. They didn't have a chance to write her out. They were planning to do that at the beginning of season three. They knew she was ill, but they thought she'd survive the summer. So we had to pull, you know, a Brandon Lee or an Oliver Reed. And we had to go into the archives to pull a scene that David Chase wanted to write right. from archival footage of Nancy Marchand. He and I and the executive producer, Eileen Landris, were, I, well, I, I did it, but they sent me five hours of videotape. Now, this is before we had digital. I mean, this is still Betamax or beta whatever. And they sent me tapes to watch 
David sent me a script for a scene that he wanted to write. And he asked me to pull out what I thought was usable. Like what was a possible scenario. So I pulled out 12 shots from those five hours. And I said, I said to them, I am absolutely confident that if we use these 12 clips, you can make a scene that works seamlessly. Okay. Okay. He and Eileen thanked me. They reviewed it. But David Chase was never a hands-on guy. And neither was Eileen Landers. They sent that list to their editor, Sidney Walensky, mm-hmm. whom I loathe to this day. They sent it to Sidney Walensky. We all had a conference call because originally The Sopranos was set up with production in New York and post in LA right. because the creator, David Chase, had said that he wanted to work in LA once it was shot. He never did. He wanted, he ended up staying in New York. Hmm. So all the heavy hitters were in New York <coughs> and post-production and editorial felt like the, you know, abused stepchild in LA. So we have this conference call and I'm sitting with David Chase, Henry Bronstein, Sidney Willen, I mean, um, Eileen Landris okay. talking to Sidley, Sidney Walensky. He doesn't know I'm in the room. And he says, well, the first question I got to ask is why the fuck are these visual effects being done in New York? That's stupid. We should move them out here. Give post-production something to do. And Henry pipes up and he says, uh, Sid, um, we're doing the visual effects in New York because Chris is here. In fact, he's in the room right here with us now. And Sidney's like, well, I didn't mean any offense. I said, no offense taken, Sid. I totally understand why you would want to keep control there. I said, but they've asked me to do this job and David's here. So the conversation went on. I told them, I gave them all printed lists with time code numbers for the 12 shots I wanted. And David and Henry are like, we're going to shoot this in about a month. I said, all right, cool. I studied those 12 shots. I tried to find the camera reports for those 12 shots. I requested them. I got some of them. I was able to work some of them out with camera angles and approximate lenses. Mm -hmm. And they were going to, they told me that on the day, I was going to get a body double for Nancy Marchand. I was going to get, I was going to get Jim Gandolfini. And I was going to get um, a kid, Natasha, I think is her name, the woman who played Olivia's maid. Okay. And I was going to get an AD, a first AD, and a director, Tim Van Patten. But Tim Van Patten had not directed that episode. Okay. So the night, so the night, and I'm, I told them, I said, I need all of these things on set, all of these shots on set queued up or with marks where I can find them and we can do, they said, you only have a day. I said, okay, I get to set, cause it's 12 shots and I am so familiar with these shots. I'm confident that we can do several takes all this thing. So now I'm on set standing alone with Jim Gandolfini 
Tim Van Patten, who I've worked with before. I like both these guys. Okay. And Bill Coleman, who was not a DP. He was a camera operator. They didn't give me a DP. And Henry was supposed to be my AD for the day. And he said, Chris, we've decided to do a splinter unit today. So you're going to be on your own. Fun times. Like, okay. He's like, but there are the tapes. Now, remember, I'm expecting to see one tape with all the clips on it. There is a box of 10 tapes. It's the same box I used to pull my shots. All Sydney did was box it up and send it back to me with notes, 50 shots with time code numbers. He goes, these are the 50 shots you have to cover. Had I been less green, had I been less green, this was my first freelance gig. I had just left Blue Sky, but I've already done the features and everything, but I'm on my own. I'm my own boss. I would have shut it down. If I had to do today, I would have said, no, this is a fucking wash. Fuck you. I'm out. I didn't. I stayed there and I did my damnedest to cover all 50 takes, which I did. Now, those 50 takes, some of them just didn't work. And I knew they wouldn't work. So, I mean, they look like cubist fucking paintings. Because keep in mind, those 50 shots were over the course of two seasons. Nancy is losing about 10 pounds a month from cancer. Her hair is differently cut. Some scenes, <coughs> she's lit on one side of her face and another shot she's lit on the other side of her face. Gotcha. I mean, I took all of these things into account when I was selecting the shots that would work. So what ended up being cut in, I spent like five days with an Inferno artist trying to get all these shots composited. Sick to my stomach the whole time. He's, he's going, oh my God, Chris, this is terrible. I'm like, I know, Nick, I know. <laughs> we delivered them. Sydney cuts a reasonable scene, but in no way what I had asked for. And it went out to air. And the first time I ever saw it was when it played. It was um, episode two of season three. And HBO threw a big shindig for, at Radio City for the digital projection. And mine was episode two, but they were showing the first two episodes. Mm. So I'm sitting in the audience. First episode goes by, everybody's hooting and hollering. Second episode comes on, the scene comes on. I swear to God, I'm choking on my bile and shrinking in my seat. I'm like, oh my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. At the end of the episode, David Chase and Eileen Landris find me and give me a huge hug. They said, Chris, you will never have any idea how much you saved us. Wow. I'm like, what? So like, it was amazing. I can't believe you were able to do that. And I was like, you're welcome. 
I was disgusted. I got a real question. So, so, so they knew how ridiculous it was. No, no. They, but they had. But if you, they when, never but knew you what Sydney did to me. I never told them. I shut up and took it. Yeah, but I mean, they knew there was like a problem you were fixing, though. <coughs> oh, so absolutely. they know there's. A, so they there's a problem. Did anybody in the crowd who is not in VFX? like have an opinion or say anything uh i run online some people tore it apart nobody mm -hmm. ever said that to me okay the team it was it was one of the most gracious teams i've ever worked with okay i loved those people i was really sad when jim gandolfini died yes. he was a great guy I've heard not that. not just an actor he was a great guy I'm still a fan of Edie Falco. I, she can do no wrong in my eyes. No. The only person who was an asshole was uh, Tony Sirico. Polly Walnuts. Because he thought it was a fucking documentary. He actually <laughs> is a low-level thug. Polly yeah. Walnuts is a low-level thug in his life. This is going to be interesting when you hear it. This is going to be an interesting. Uh, you know what? Tony can come looking for me. Not the first time I've said Tony Sirico was a thug. I think I think we have the Raw's podcast in film. Uh, we've had a lot. We had the the one from the first year Austin Action Fest where there where no chance was talking about their distribution situation and they were vicious. About, I was like, hey man, this is going out live. <laughs> Are you sure you want to? And he was like, "Man, I don't care." I was like, "Okay, okay." So, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. Really? <laughs> you know what? Um, with regards to the airing, uh, I mean the um, showing, the viewing for everyone, it's probably because you you honored someone that's going through something, and they wanted that to make sure that that happened. There's an empathy. Oh, absolutely, Nancy was beloved yeah. nancy marchand was absolutely beloved i was crushed when i heard she died because mm -hmm. i had already done a couple of episodes for them but i was sad as a human i was sad as a fan she was nothing like livia soprano mm -hmm. if you look at nancy marchand's career it goes back to the 50s yeah no, like I said, that team is one of the most beloved teams to me. I didn't, I barely worked for them. I didn't work for them that much at all. But I was always greeted as a friend and a colleague. Always. No, that's, Tim Gattolfini would always make fun of me because I was a nerd. Tim Van, pa oh, here's a quick story. That time was the first time I had Tim Van Patten alone. Because the VFX I was doing for The Sopranos were really small cosmetic, except the time I turned uh, uh, um, Pastor, Vinny Pastor, into uh, a fish. We turned him into a talking fish. I guess but Tim Van Patten started out as an actor. He was in a movie called Class of 1984. 
that was a futuristic, apocalyptic movie where a gang of high school toughs takes over the school. I'm looking at he was one. He was one of the gang of toughs. Okay. Fight Club stole a scene directly out of that movie. Interesting. Um, there's a scene where Tim Van Patten beats the shit out of himself in the boys' bathroom while the principal is in there. It's the same scene where Edward Norton beats the shit out of himself in his supervisor's office. Got it. Right? So I had worked on Fight Club, talking to Tim Van Patten. I'm like, Tim, I've been a fan of yours. But I'll never forget the scene in class of 1984 that they stole for Fight Club. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, you know what, Chris? No matter how far away I, or how far I've gotten in my career, <laughs> somebody always comes around to remind me of shit from my past. And it's always a fucking nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to go watch classic before. Oh, but yeah, uh, look, at it, look at it now, man. Yeah. It's got a, it's got a warriors feel to it. I think I, I think I can go you go check yeah, this out. Post, it's post warriors. That was yeah. the clothing they you know they right. they were dressed like punks. You know. Whatever. Yeah. So, so, I so I gotta ask you this though. If I please could, do. Um, visual effects wise, as wide as far as action, what what was your contribution to that? You know, on Fight Club? Yes. Fight Club, I had a very small part. Okay. My team built the penguin in the ice cave. Okay. Okay. Um, a now friend and former mentor of mine, Kevin Haug, based on our work on Alien 4, called me up and asked, he said, David Fincher had seen our work in Alien and wanted to know if we'd be interested in doing photo real animal work on Fight Club. And I'm like, David Fincher? Uh, yes. Wait, let me think about it for a yes. <laughs> what kind uh, of yes do I want again? It, it actually turned into a very interesting project. And I mean, do you want more anecdotes because yeah, I feel like I'm hogging this yeah. fucking mic. Well, 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 I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying to relate what you're doing uh, based on the action that you've uh, either seen uh, in reference in, in relation to visual effects as far as the, the action goes. Um, in a previous conversation, I asked you what was, how intricate were you or have you seen visual effects within Fear of the Walking Dead? Um, and the answer was, I think it was, it was pretty, pretty intricate as far as a relationship between what you guys were doing, uh, wanted to do what, how you built it on set, I mean, through onset, uh, set supervision and what, what do you guys layered on that in post? Can oh, you, uh, speak about that. Okay. Well, in Fear the Walking Dead, um, almost all of our visual effects are invisible. Uh, we have a very high volume of effects, but not, 
not necessarily a very wide breadth of the type. We do all the kills, humans and walkers. We kill them all. Everything is done in visual effects. We either create wounds and exit blood. We extend weapons uh, that special effects and props provides with us in conjunction with stunt players, choreography, and stunt coordinators, um, choreography. You know, we've cut off all the heads. We've animated all the dead heads. Like there was an episode last season where there are a bunch of walker heads hanging from a tree. Uh, We scanned uh, actual our walker players in costume and had them, you know, did 30 seconds, you know, videoed 30 seconds of their motions. And then we warped and wrapped that onto 3D spheres. Um, We do some, hopefully not too obvious, unless of course you realize the whole show is shot in in the Austin, Texas area. You know, we added a nuclear power plant Mm-hmm. You know, into the woods, we added uh, Signal Peak to the background of some of our locations that were shot in like Wimberley or something. Um, you know, we do sky replacement. We uh, make one-story buildings, two-story buildings. Um, we take. Uh, there was an episode again last season where a hurricane struck and we were on top of a tall building in Austin and the background was the Austin skyline supposedly post hurricane. Of course there was traffic and the buildings are new. So we broke windows, we broke antennas, we painted out traffic, we added water damage to a lot of the buildings in the background. Oh, so, so all, all of, all amounts of uh, environmental effects. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, they're all invisible. They, you know, they're all designed to serve the story. Right. Um, this coming season uh, hasn't aired yet, so I don't yeah. know. I'm supposed to talk about it. Oh, but. you can't. Hey, hey, man, everyone, yes, go, yes. You know, you know come, come on with it. Yeah. I don't mean uh, for you. I mean <laughs> for my further employment. Oh, oh okay. whoops. And oh, the yeah, NDA yeah. I've signed. Oh, there are those. So, yeah. so my questions are for this. Um, for, for What is your advice for fledgling uh, visual effects, uh, DPs, and camera camera people what what is your uh advice to these newbies fledgling people it's a tough one because it's going to sound really simplistic but the best advice i can give to future cinematographers or visual effects supervisors is look at things in nature or go to museums look at lighting look at the way painters handle light look at the way photographers handle light Look at the way things really behave in nature. Go stare at a waterfall. Go look at a faucet dripping. And then go out and look at visualizations, usually from the scientific community. Go out and find as much as you can. But really, learning software 
is irrelevant unless you see it as a tool. Like if you want to, if you want to be a visual, see, I can only speak to how I became a visual effects supervisor and I've never been a digital artist mm. except in from 1986 to early 1988. I knew I was not that good at it. I was not that good an artist. What I'm good at is supervising people and communicating what I or a director wants. Mm -hmm. And because I know I'm well-versed enough in the, what the tools can do, I never tell people how to do things, but I tell people what to do. Right. I tell them what I want it to look like. And I claim ultimate responsibility for that. Right. If it looks wrong, it's my fault. It's not their fault because until I approve it, you know, once I approve something, it's on me. Right. If the director doesn't like it or if somebody else doesn't like it, it falls on me. <laughs> I never punch down. Right. right. So when but, you scientifically, what does that mean to you? According to the laws of physics, mm -hmm. I know people from my work at Blue Sky. Remember, we were all we weren't just emulating light. We were emulating emulating other physical properties. For instance, in Alien Four, there was no there were no bubbles in that tank we had to create realistic bubble simulations that would be driven by an alien that was also not in the tank. Right. There were no bubbles. So what we did was not me, I say we, my team, mm -hmm. but a couple of the science visualizer physicists created bub bubble simulations in water affected by collision detection. So we made a rough outline of the alien and made it collide in virtual space with water bubbles and then ran a simulation of what those bubbles would do hydrodynamically around the shape of an alien. Then we put those two together and colored it and textured it and lit it. We had to fake a lot of the lighting, for example, in Alien 4, because at about 12 feet, you lose red. There's no red at 14 feet underwater, really? unless it's from a light source that is underwater. Yeah. But if you shine a light through the top of seawater, red disappears at about 12 to 14 feet. And they so everything in the scene that has any red in it, any magenta pigmentation, mm -hmm. Sorry, my battery's running low. Oh, um, no, no worries, but we're, keep on. Okay. Was created by lights underwater, much closer to the actors. Right. But we never had an alien in that water. So if we were taking lighting reference, it was all from the light at the top. Right. So our alien, realistically, was blue-green. And they kept at the director kept adding us to add more magenta into it. So what the only way we couldn't affect the light, the only thing we could do was affect the texture. Right. So if you removed our virtual alien out of the water, 
it looked like um, maple leaves. Mm. It was orange, brown, red. Because we had to eliminate that from the blue, from the red that was lost from the light. Wow. So that's an example of something looking believable, but not, and realistic, but not actually real. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. So I thought you, that's what you meant. <laughs> necessarily, um, I don't think a lot of people take the time to maybe have an advisor or seek, or read or study what they mm -hmm. need in the context of the story that they're trying to tell. And I think some directors fail to do that as well. So. We all serve the story. Humility takes a lot of importance. It does. I don't, I have an ego when I'm discussing a particular problem, but I don't have an ego outside the hierarchy. The best I can do is advise a director what I think should be done and give the basis for that. But once that decision is dismissed, I don't go around bad-mouthing it. That's not my right. place. Right. My place is to bring you all the tools that I have at my disposal, and then you tell me how to use them. But I will give advice to directors working with visual effects, is don't tell us how to do our jobs. Tell us what job you want done. You do far more danger, far more danger by thinking that you can tell us how to do it. And the worst time that ever happened was the first virtual production I did, which was called Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And I came into that after the ship had sunk. Um, I came in a year after they shot. And I came in from one visual effects house that was literally being driven out of business by production because production kept telling them how to do things and they were like, okay, but they weren't making any progress. Mm. So production told them to find a quote unquote real producer. So I knew some of these guys, not on the show, but I knew the guys that owned the company. They called me and asked me to come out and save them. So I went out and I spent a week evaluating where they were. And I'm like, you should not be listening to Paramount tell you how to do this. And I had a meeting with Paramount and I basically renegotiated the whole contract by telling them, look, do you want a movie or do you want to beat these guys into submission? Because the contract they wrote is awful and you as Paramount know that. So at this point, you can either get the shots that you want the way you want them to look or you can just be bullies and have everybody go under. I personally don't give a shit either way. And they're like, no, we want a movie. I said, okay, if you want a movie, here's what you have to do. Paramount had built in all these unnecessary steps. Like we need final approval and high contrast black and white before we can go to colorization. Because the movie started as an art project where that was the way they did it. I'm Got like, it. okay, so you're turning a graduate art project into a feature film for $3 million. You're out of your fucking minds. Show me the frames you want and we will make the footage look like the frames you want. How's that? And then went, oh, that sounds great. 
I will, I'm like, well, let me and this very talented team stop jumping through your stupid fucking hoops and give you the frames you want. Well, it's funny because Chill knows, can testify to this. I am not VFX, SFX. It's not my deal. I can do certain things. I'm good at punching people in the face. I'm pretty good at filming people getting punched in the face. I'm good at that too, but I'm not good at filming people getting punched in the face. But I got a pretty good, I got a pretty good hand. Zim, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at shooting and putting action together. But when we start talking about, like, if you want to get super artsy with the, with, with the lighting, if you want to start talking about special, like VFX, I'm immediate, like, I'm like, whoever is doing VFX, I'm trying to get that guy, I'll hire you for an additional day to come on the set and tell me how you, what do you need this to look like for you to do your job as effectively? Like the last one we worked on, luckily it's a, it's a, it's like a fun little project, but my friend is one of the people who's an actor and he's also a camera guy. So it's like a three man team doing this little deal, but he said he wanted to do the VFX. So I'm like, cool. So we're in there talking about it. I've got a way that I think makes sense. And he was like, I don't need to do that. I was like, well, the other guy told me, he's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. We're going to do this. I was like, are you doing it? He said, yeah. I said, okay. How did it turn out? We're still working it out. Hopefully it'll be good. He's been consistent to this point. He's normally, he's, he's actually a pretty good filmmaker who's picked up VFX named James Drake. So he normally does things he can do. That's great. Overpromising is dangerous. But when you say calling him in on the day, that gives me pause. Because the best way to keep your visual effects cheap and good Mm -hmm. is to bring, if you only have one visual effect, I get calls for this all the time. Oh, we've got one scene with a visual effect. Fine. But if you want visual effects to be intrinsic, spend the extra money to get somebody on board in pre-production. It's so much less expensive. Okay. So my expertise is cheap. Fixing broken stuff costs three times as much and will never look as good. Okay, no, I see what you're saying. I don't mean from the perspective of we've got this whole thing, hey, man, show up and do it. They know way before they're already oh, part of the project. But yeah, I'm saying, like, I, I like to have people, like, if you're going to be dealing with the footage in post, I love having you on set when we're shooting it, looking like if we can afford it, to look at it and go, yeah, that'll work. Or, nope, that's terrible. Mm-mm. Do it this way. It'll be easier for me to post. Because a lot of times on the indie side, I'm asking someone, we don't have a million dollars. So I'm asking you to do something. What is the most cost-effective way to do what you want? What I need you to do. Great. How do you want me to do it? Does this need to be a static shot for you to do it? Because you may only have a limited amount of time. Can I move the camera? Do I shoot 4K? We'll fix it up and then I can push and post. Like, what do you, like, I'm really, there's no ego with me when we're outside of my wheelhouse. Like, I'm bringing you. I'll tell you this. You are asking some of the best right questions. The trick is don't answer them yourself. Those are the questions to ask but don't think you have the answers that that's the danger. Yeah. Welcome, and it doesn't sound like you do. So it sounds like 
You're in pretty good shape. It's for working. The first VFX person I ever talked to was chill. And then I was like, oh, okay. They need things I don't even know. There's questions I don't even know to ask. Chill, what questions? Hour film project. Birthday Hour Film Festival. Um, that was unique. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> you learn a lot from failure. You learn a lot from failure if you can afford to. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it was thing, man it's, here's the thing. It's not fucking failure. Yeah. <laughs> it's a miracle. It is a miracle to get anything photographed and edited with sound. Anything. Oh, yeah. Everything beyond Absolutely. that is gravy. But we have a saying in visual effects. It takes 40% of the work to make it 5% better. Mm. And that's yes, real all the way up the line. Okay, mm. sir. And the three most important aspects of production yes. are pre-production, pre-production, and pre-production. <laughs> On True that story. note, on that <laughs> note, I'm going to have to call it. One, two, three. But All right. This is definitely, I, I, I love talking to you guys because, well, I like the people that, that come on here and you give mo the most wonderful information, the ones yeah. that, that are actionable, not just pie in the sky stuff. But also, you're the real son. I mean, you, 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 yeah, see, that's Mel, see, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, you're, you're the real kid, you're the real son, so, yeah. I, I thank you for being in that parking lot, uh, tell, please, can't you hear me? Yes, Dita can hear you, yes. Yes, hello. Hello, <laughs> ma'am, we, well, thank you for, for putting up with your husband yapping, and we all talking about technical stuff, um, yeah. but thank you for your patience. She's a camera assistant on the same show. She could run circles around us technically. <laughs> um, Theta, next, uh, next Chris, time. <laughs> I, 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 I will be happy to be your assistant and, and eyes and take notes and stuff. Just saying. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm happy to teach at all times. The trick on the show that we are hopefully going back to in October mm -hmm. is that they won't allow any guests whatsoever. They were always pretty frosty about that to begin with, but now yeah, but with especially the pandemic. Now. It gets really, really hard to, uh, you know, get get new people out and and show them show them our ways. But, Jill, but I'm, I, I'm certainly sorry. open to it. I would like to talk to you offline about visual effects. Not today, but when you are when you have a half hour or so. Yes, sir. And my phone's not dying. <laughs> and also, you had mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about my take on virtual production. Yes. I've done a few. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to do this again and stay specifically yes. for that if you want. Yes. But I also want to talk to you, uh, talk turkey with you. Okay, definitely. So, so we're definitely talking tur turkey on two. But we need one, uh, one of these things for virtual uh, production because I want to see how, how, how we can particularly because we have been um, and the like in Austin Action Fest, we need to know, we need to see or hear about the aspects of punching, fighting, lighting um, between green screen, LEDs, that kind of information so we can oh, tell our our crowd, our, our audience about about the integration. Sound good? Do you want me to plug, do you want to set another date now? <laughs> I see, it is. Yeah. Uh, this is 
No, seriously. Uh, hold up. We're, we're like that. Hold up. I could do it tomorrow. Oh. Well. I like Chris. I like his style. I like his moves. Okay. Um, how about Tuesday, September 1st? Tuesday, September 1st. That's two days from today, yeah? Yes. Yes. What time? Let's make this at, let's see, 10, 10 p.m. No, 10 a.m., excuse me. Is that all right? 10 a.m. Eastern time? 10 a.m. Uh, or Central, Central time. time. Yes, Central time. So 11 a.m. Eastern? Yes. I'll put it in my calendar. I'll be back here at the Dunkin' Donuts. Awesome. Eat some donuts? Oh, drink some donuts. You have them sponsored the next one. We don't eat here. <laughs> We're usually here when they're closed. They don't turn their Wi-Fi off, so it's been a wonderful blessing. <laughs> I do, however, drink a lot of their coffee. Hey, man. We'll probably Austin Action Fest, sponsored by Dunkin' Donuts. We'll tag them in the quits. Hey. We guys, it, has been a real sponsors. it has been a real pleasure talking to all three of you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you Thank so you much for coming. And we, we don't do this because it's, I mean, we have obviously selfish reasons because we're in production, but we do this for guys who are just getting started or people who've been at it for a while and getting information to them. So they, a lot of people don't even know what they don't know. Right. And there's I a lot know. of today that was just. And I was, I was one of those kids. Yeah, I was one of those kids, and I don't want there to be any more of those kids. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but I'm also likely to tell most of them, "Don't do it." <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, or if you do do it, here are the things to watch out for. Exactly. You know, it is not an easy business. I've run out of unemployment more times than I can count. I I definitely hear you. It has been especially right now. It's been it's been interesting. I've I found angles that work for me. That's cool. But it is it is interesting. But I'm happy to teach. I think it's mainly what I do. Awesome. Awesome. So, well, I'm looking forward to talking to you all again on Tuesday. All right. Thank you. Have a great hey, rest of your I'll talk day. to you offline. And uh, thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to the Austin Action Fest podcast.